If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 27. Acts chapter 27. You need to follow the science. Or you need to listen to the experts. But is this sound advice? I know we've heard that quite a bit the last few years. Let's look at a few statements made by experts in the past, shall we? In 1934, Albert Einstein, I think many would consider him an expert, he said the following, there is not the slightest indication that nuclear energy will ever be obtainable. Fast forward a few years, and you have the atomic bomb developed and over 400 nuclear power plants around the world. What are some other things experts have predicted? Well, they predicted the following. Nobody wants a home computer. PCs are prevalent around the world today. People will get tired of the television set. TV in every home. Some have three, four. Horses are here to stay for travel. I don't see too many riding into church on a horse today. Online shopping won't work. Boy, did Amazon prove that one wrong. You see, as we see clearly, the experts may get some things right from time to time, but they also get plenty of things wrong. Today we'll be back in the book of Acts, where we see the Apostle Paul try to warn against the danger of shipwreck and be ignored for the experts' take. We're going to be looking at four things here in Acts chapter 27. Number one, the instruction to wait, verses 1 through 10. Number two, the ignored warning, verses 11 through 20. Number three, reassurance of recovery, verses 21 through 38. And number four, safe arrival, verses 39 through 44. Let's start with number one, instruction to wait, verses 1 through 10. And when it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius a centurion of Augustan regiment. So entering a ship of Adramatium, we put to sea, meaning to sail along the coast of Asia. Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. And the next day we landed at Sidon. And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. When we had put to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus, because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed over the sea, which is off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. Of Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy, and he put us on board. When we had sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmon. Passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near the city of Lycia. Now when much time had been spent, and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also our lives." One of the things that's amazing here is that Paul has just finished his trial under Festus and even Agrippa, who was called in to make a determination of what Paul should be charged with on his way to Caesar. And Paul is sent away on his journey to Rome. Unfortunately, even after all the statements that were provided, 
He was still to go to Rome and be presented before Caesar, though they didn't have a clarification of what to really charge him with. It seems as though here we see Luke joins Paul on his journey. That's why we have a lot of the details. And this is what some would consider to be Paul's fourth missionary journey, if you will. The journey to Rome. I love what Constable says about this. He says, this story also throws more light on the personality and character of Paul. Though he was a prisoner, he became the leader and savior of all those who traveled with him. Though he was weak, God made him strong. He was God's man, the Holy Spirit working in and through him for the blessing of everyone he touched. You see, Paul is placed under the authority of Julius, a centurion who is very respectful to the Apostle Paul. In fact, he's kind to him and gives him time to spend with his friends as he's about to make his journey to Rome. Paul is given favor by him, and he understands that Paul also needs encouragement. So he gives him time with his friends in fellowship with fellow believers. There are little nuggets that you'll see as you read through the Word of God that I think sometimes you need to pause and take in. One of these things is, it's an important point for all of us that are in charge of others, even if they owe us on a task or a project or help, that we understand how important it is for them to spend time with those that matter most to them. It's important for people under us to have fellowship. You'll always get better results from those under you, leaders, if you understand the need that each one has to be around those that are dear to them, whether it be family, friends, or maybe even other church members. Sometimes leaders have people become so busy under them that they forget what it means for those under them to spend quality time with others that matter to them. Connection is important to every one of us. The right connection is most important. Paul, after a few stops here, is transferred after another ship heading to Italy, probably one carrying grain from Alexandria, Egypt. Now, as he's on this journey, the crew meets heavy winds, and they attempt to work their way around stopping in far havens, waiting for a better time to continue the journey. But it seems like they wait too long than they originally had planned. And now they're about to set sail in the most dangerous time of the year, right near winter. Paul warns those in charge that they shouldn't push to sail as it will most certainly end in disaster and shipwreck. Paul warns those in charge, says, listen, I probably don't know everything, but this is probably going to be very dangerous for all of us to go right now. Paul warns specifically of the loss of belongings and even the lives of those on board. As often happens with instruction to wait, I'm sure you've never done this, it's ignored. As often happens with instruction to wait, it's often ignored. Number two, ignored warning. Verses 11 through 20. Nevertheless, all the things that Paul just warned about, nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also. If by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete opening toward the southwest and northwest, and winter there. When the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. But not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose, called Euryclidon. So when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. In running under the shelter of an island called, called Clauda, we secured the skiff with difficulty. 
When they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship. And fearing lest they should run aground on the side of sands, they struck sail and so were driven. And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship. On the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. Now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. Paul puts out the warning. Because Paul doesn't know what he's talking about, he's ignored. Because Paul's not the expert, he's ignored. Paul, with all his wisdom, was not the expert. He never captained a ship. In fact, what does he even know about sailing? Well, if you look at Paul's letter to the Corinthians, you'll see that Paul gets questioned a lot about his qualifications. In fact, here's his response to what gives him the right to tell the Corinthian church what to do as an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Verses 24 through 31. Listen to what it says. This is Paul responding to the qualifications he has as an apostle. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Who is weak, and am I not weak? Who is made to stumble, and I do not burn with indignation? If I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying." You see, Paul tells the church of Corinth that I've been through quite a few things. But I'm a nobody. I'm weak. God is the one who is strong. And he's the one that's given me this insight. He's given me the office of an apostle. God knows my heart. He knows that I've been through some things, including one of the things that Paul mentions there, shipwreck. I dare say that when Paul is speaking to these people on the boat here back in Acts, he has some experience he can share. I've gone through something like this before. I want to warn you, this could end very poorly. Believer, you don't need to defend everything that you've been through. God knows if you're telling the truth or not. Even if others don't believe you. Paul's warning of shipwrecked is ignored. And the centurion goes with the expert's opinion. The captain and the owner of the ship, and their goal is to at least make it to Phoenix, which was the better port for them to stay for the winter, about 45 miles away. They figured they could at least make that trip. No sooner had they taken off, though, they are met with strong winds, which pushes them further away from their destination. They had to start throwing cargo out to steady the ship, but it kept getting worse. The experts didn't have the answers. It got to the point of leaving everyone on, the bo on board hopeless. You could just picture the scene. 
We're going to do it. Let's throw these things aside. We'll be able to still make it. And every single plan that they had made was thwarted. Everything they had hoped would happen did not happen. Every prediction that they had made did not come to pass. Everybody on board was hopeless. You ever been there? You ever assume certain things would turn out a certain way in your life? And for some reason, everything in your world falls apart. Everything you assumed, if I just planned it this way, things would have been different. And you go ahead and execute the plan, but the plan doesn't work out the way you want it. Which is one of the reasons why I think a lot of people give up on planning, because they realize that sometimes planning doesn't work out the way that it should. But you need to be wise. Scripture says planning is a good thing. Wise people should plan. Unfortunately, remember that in our plans, there's a sovereign God that stands behind it all. And that God can change anything that we plan to have happen at any moment. I want to stop and pause here for a moment to make a few statements on the need for disciples of Christ to be bold about the truth, even if they aren't the experts, if you will. Listen, the world will constantly tell the truth to be the church to be quiet because they don't know what they're talking about. And in some areas, they may very well be the case. But does that mean we don't make a stand on things Scripture clearly reveals to us? I submit we ought to. In the case of abortion, the church should stand up and fight for the rights of the unborn as the abolitionists did in fighting against slavery. That man is made in the image of God. We don't fight because we're experts, church. We know that man is made in the image of God, and that is reason enough for us to fight. We're to protect the innocent and not go along with the survival of the fittest that values life very minimally. If you've been paying attention at all to the media and all the things that have been said the last couple of years, you will see that there really is a survival of the fittest mentality behind the scenes. People are not operating under the paradigm of man made in the image of God. People masquerade through that. They will argue that position that Christians should do this because God's love while secretly actually wishing Christians harm. Very disgusting what's going on in the world right now. People are manipulating God's word to promote evolutionary thought. In the case of religious beliefs, not all religions are equal, church. I know the experts will say there's a benefit to all of them. You don't have to have a doctorate degree in religious studies to state what Jesus himself states, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. There's no access to the Father except through Him. You need to realize that Jesus Himself disagreed with the experts, and He also didn't answer every time they asked gotcha questions. Some of you bite at that. Someone throws something out there to reel you in, and you can't help yourself. You make a fool out of yourself in Christ. Careful with gotcha questions, church. There are plenty in the world that seek only to destroy your faith. You need to pay attention to whether people want an honest answer or if they're just simply trying to trip you up. You need to understand both Paul and Jesus knew which one to answer. You don't need to be an expert in relationships to know what damages them if you've read any scripture. In fact, one of the areas that I really was convicted about this last week, and, and I, I know we started the year off reading through Genesis, but just how jacked up 
families are in the Bible. And you think, man, with all the struggles people are having with the pandemic and people are not talking to each other, have you read the Bible? Have you read Genesis? It starts right from the beginning. Right from the beginning. You have tension in families right from the get-go. The first family. A brother killing a brother. Stunning. One of the areas that I really was convicted by is really seeing how the patriarchs operated in charge of their families. And seeing that some of the fallacies in their parenting was passed on to their children. Particularly Abraham and Isaac. The ways that Abraham did things, Isaac followed in his steps. Some of them were good things, some of them were terrible things. You don't need to be an expert to know that man is selfish and will do what benefits him because of the sin nature that he's born with. No one needs to be an expert to tell you that. Nor should you be an expert if you have to tell that to others. Scripture clearly reveals that to us. When others don't want to hear your opinion on their poor life choices regarding their morality, you hold to what Scripture says. And you cling to that. And you stop worrying about what they say, about what you think, because you don't have the credentials. It's amazing that so many of the experts that always claim they know better have to later retract their papers that they write. If you do any study on what Scripture says about the family and you compare it to what's been going on in society, you'll see that we parent differently today than we did 50 years ago. You'll see that parents today are not doing what they did 50, 60 years ago. Not that we're saying parents were perfect back then. They're far from it. But there are some things that they had that really came under the paradigm that aligned more with this. Meaning children are to obey. Today's expectations, children are friends. They're my buddy. Church, when others don't want to hear your opinion on their poor life choices, you be the example they need. You be sure to practice what you preach. Now, God knows that every single one of us in here, if we've lived on this earth any amount of time, we've failed in areas that we tell others they ought to do better in. But church, the question for us this morning is not whether or not you're a sinner. We all know you are. Others know you are. You know you are. God knows you are. The question is, are you living a consistent life right now to where somebody wants to approach you on something that really bothers them? And they know that you don't agree with them on it. Are you being consistent living out your position? If you're going to go scream against abortion, you should be opposed to pornography. If you're going to be screaming against the broken homes, you ought to love your spouse the way God expects. If you're going to be upset that the world doesn't care for the children, you should value your own the way that God intends. If your approach to parenting is just like the world's and it has no biblical basis, if Christ is not valued in your home, you have no leg to stand on when you want to tell others of what God says. It's going to be a very difficult thing to explain. Do we all have blind spots? Of course we do. Every single one of us has blind spots. The difficulty is when we have to deal with those blind spots, whether we're honest enough to not just admit it, but do something about it. Too many of us do this very ridiculous routine, right? We see the flaw, we admit the flaw, we do something about it for one day, and then we go right back to the same habit again. We don't even ask for the Holy Spirit to help us on that. It's almost as if he's not even in the equation. It's our self-determination, self-will that's going to get us out of this. How many times has that worked out? 
Sometimes we need outside guidance. Sometimes we need outside counsel. The truth is we've all failed to practice what we preach at times. And when we live a genuine Christian life, then when we're going to own sin and actually do something about it and say, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I will fight this sin in my life, then we will have a testimony to the world. And we'll be given opportunities to give them assurance that all is not lost, church, that God can restore broken sinners like us. Unfortunately, the church can't do much in helping the world because the church has jumped in with them. The church has coddled their own sin and wondered why the world doesn't find them to be in any way different. Why would I want your Jesus? He's not done anything with your struggle with sin. You give in just as much as I do. When we live a faithful life, we can show the world that God can still heal and restore broken people. Number three, reassurance of recovery. Verses 21 through 38. But after long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. And now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of God, to whom I belong, and whom I serve, saying, do not be afraid, Paul, you must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore, take heart, men, for I believe, God, that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. Now, when the fourteenth night had come, as we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land. And they took soundings and found it to be twenty fathoms. When they had gone a little farther, they took soundings again and found it to be 15 fathoms. Then fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when they had let down the skiff into the sea, under pretense of putting out anchors from the pro, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall off. And as day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all to take food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day you have waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. Therefore I urge you to take nourishment, for this is for your survival, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and also took food themselves. And in all, we were 276 persons on the ship. So when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw out the wheat into the sea. When it seems completely hopeless... And completely lost, there's the Apostle Paul, that crazy conspiracy theorist that saw what was coming. The non-expert, the one who didn't know what he was talking about, providing reassurance that all would work out fine, though they didn't listen to him. Listen, the ship's going down, guys, but we're going to come out of this alive. It's not all hopeless. We're going to lose the ship, but 
we'll still stay alive. God promised me that I'd make it safe to stand before Caesar. I believe him on that. God promised me that I'd make it safely. So your safety is guaranteed. But we'll have to experience shipwreck. Believer, disciple of Jesus Christ, we may have storms that knock us all out. But we have assurance of safety and victory at the end. So many Christians are such doomsday prophets with no hope. I got to tell you, it's very, very frustrating to read how much worse the world gets and not have any hope if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Believers should be the ones filled with the most hope. And yet many of them are the biggest cowards right now. Many believe it's over. Look at what they're doing to our nation. All hope is lost. And you know what? They're only partially correct. There is an incredible day coming when Jesus comes back victorious to reign. Let me put it in perspective. You as an American citizen should be more concerned about your citizenship in heaven. We're so sucked in to what this world offers that we keep forgetting that. You are enlisted in the army of Christ. You're sitting there a coward, afraid of what the world's saying. He's already got the victory. It's already guaranteed. We don't lose. Everything that seems lost in this life is gain and glory. The conqueror of sin and death will rule and reign. He is coming to conquer. Our job is to tell others to bow before him in reverence and to join us in the army. Listen to what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2. This is out of the Amplified Version. It says, take with me your share of hardship, passing through the difficulties which you are called to endure, like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Now, believer, you need to hear this part right here. No soldier in active service gets entangled in the ordinary business affairs of civilian life. He avoids them so that he may please the one who enlisted him to serve. How much is the world taking our attention away from what Christ has called us to? How many of us are more concerned with what King Jesus wants from us than our president wants from us? And it doesn't matter who's in office. It could be your guy. How many of us are more concerned with being a soldier in the army of Christ than we are being a citizen of America? We're living for the temporary, church. Christian soldier, what, what are you personally so worried about in this life? You're enlisted as a soldier of Christ. You are to fight for him. Now, does that include being a good citizen? Paul is a good citizen of Rome. Sure. But Paul had this right. He started with my loyalties to Christ and then a Roman citizen. Many in the church today are America first. They bleed white, red, white, and blue. And Jesus is kind of further down the line. I'll get back around to being a Christian when things get better. I don't want too much pressure on me. I don't want people calling me out. I'm uncomfortable with that. Why tell them I'm going to church right now? 
Paul tells Timothy, listen to these words, fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you are called. Listen, church, I want to say this carefully, but I want you to think honestly. Some things should be beneath us to be bothered with if we know what we are here on this earth for. Some things that you and I are concerned with shouldn't even be on the radar for us. Like, that's petty and worthless. It's not worth our time. I've got something greater that I'm fighting for. We're going to share the gospel with as many as we can. We're going to build families with warriors willing to lay it down for the king. We're not going to be afraid no matter what the world throws at us, church. It's time to stand up. You've been enlisted. It's time to get training. You've got a sword. Use it. The sword is not dull. It's sharp. Your practice is what's wrong. And unfortunately, many do not have good training in it. Church, it doesn't mean that we aren't weak. We are all weak. But it's in our weakness that we realize he's strong. We are only under the paradigm of Christ. Great. Because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We don't have anything to boast of, church. In and of ourselves, we've got nothing to boast of. We may have done a couple things, deserved a few rewards, a few attaboys, girl. But in the grand scheme of things, it's all Christ. The people stay on board here, and they release the lifeboats under Paul's instructions. That was a trying thing to do. Paul encourages them all to eat. He thanks God. And as happens many times when you've been down and hungry, food raises your spirit. I don't know if you've ever had that happen to you. The food was enough to give them the energy and strength that they would need when they experienced the shipwreck. After eating a good meal, they lighten the ship by throwing the wheat overboard, hoping for that safe arrival to shore. Number four, safe arrival. Verses 39 through 44. When it was day, they did not recognize the land. But they observed a bay with a beach, onto which they planned to run the ship if possible. And they let go of the anchors and left them in the sea. Meanwhile, loosing the rudder ropes, and they hoisted the mainsail to the wind and made for shore. But striking a place where two seas met, they ran the ship aground. And the prow stuck fast and remained immovable, but the stern was being broken up by the violence of the waves. And the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land. And the rest, some on boards and some on parts of the ship. And so it was that they all escaped safely to land. So as they're trying to get to shore, they hit a reef, seems like. And they're stuck before being able to bring it to land. The ship's falling apart with the waves crashing on the boat. There's now pressure for the prisoners to not be able to escape. So the soldiers think of killing them 
before they are able to do that. As it would have been their lives on the line if it happened. I'm kind of curious when I read this, like your life is in danger right now, and your only concern is to make sure that you have to survive till the next trial, so you make sure you take care of the prisoners first. I mean, I don't know. I understand the, the thinking behind it, but I'm thinking, everybody's in danger right now. Paul's life is spared, though, because the centurion understands what's going on and the danger that Paul's life is in if they go ahead and kill the prisoners. He understands that Paul would not do such a thing as to escape if given the chance. So he commands all that could swim to make a break for shore. So they all arrive on different pieces of the ship that are floating. Some swimming, others holding on to those boards from the ship that have just been broken apart. But what's amazing, as Paul predicted, though, they all arrived safe to shore. Not without hardship, but safe at last. Listen, church, we have this assurance as disciples of Christ that God has started, and what He has started, He will finish in our lives. Even those that arrive in methods that they would not prefer. In fact, the same analogy is used by Paul in one of his writings where he says, those in the faith have made a shipwreck of their faith. The reality is, church, so many have made a shipwreck of their faith. And they're going to barely make it to shore one day. Barely make it to shore. They're not going to make it to shore victorious, but beaten down after shipwreck. We're assured of eternal life if we placed our faith in Jesus Christ. The journey itself may be rocky and difficult, We may experience shipwreck due to poor choices we make. But we will be safe at the end because that's what Christ has promised. Here's the beauty of the gospel that I think sometimes I struggle with. I understand the tenacity of certain believers wanting to fight for what Christ has called them to. And then I wonder how much grace God extends to those believers that literally could care less about the fact that they've been redeemed. How much extended grace to Christians that spit on everything in this Bible that they don't care to live out. And then I realize, that's me. Here I am ready to point the finger at everybody else not being a solid Christian soldier for Christ. And I realize how much of a coward I've become in certain areas. How many areas I've compromised in my own life. And then you realize grace is really undeserved. My heart breaks for many that I see that were saved years ago, were baptized, and they want nothing to do with Christ today. Ultimately, I don't know their hearts. But it breaks my heart when I see parents that have made a shipwreck of their faith and they don't think that this affects their children that are growing up in their homes. It breaks my heart to see many They go to church. They can even send their kids to a Christian school. And at home, it is almost as if Jesus is an afterthought entirely. The Word of God is an afterthought entirely. That's for the really super Christians. I'm just a regular person. I don't need that. I 
Unfortunately, to many a believer, the Word of God is of very little importance. Church is of very little importance. Listen to what Thomas Watson says about the importance of how we hear the Word. Take heed of drowsiness in hearing. Drowsiness shows much irreverence. How lively are many when they are about the world. But in the worship of God, how drowsy. In the preaching of the word, is not the bread of life broken to you? And will a man fall asleep at his food? Which is worse, to stay from a sermon or sleep at sermon? Church, in conclusion, I really want to ask this question of all of us. Who are you listening to? Who are you listening to? Are you listening to all the experts and finding yourself in the same hole you were in before? Have you thought that if you just tried harder at attacking that sin or fighting back against that sin that you struggle with, that it would just go away on its own? Be careful, believer. What I think is one of the most difficult things to admit in the Christian life is the fact that your struggle and someone else's that may be similar will possibly be fought a little bit differently based on who you are. A young man may struggle with the same thing another young man struggles with, but their fight may come in different forms. Doesn't mean that Scripture doesn't have certain principles that we all can apply. Of course it does. The unfortunate thing is many times what tends to happen in the church is because I was able to overcome this and it no longer has become an area of struggle in my life. Now I just go ahead and find anybody else that struggles with it, tell them, here's what I did, and it's gone away. And many times it's the Holy Spirit that completely took that desire away, and that other person will not be able to relate to that. For some, a real war that takes place and takes a long time occurs with certain sins. Others, it's like overnight it's gone. The desire is gone. They're able to completely avoid that temptation now. We need to be careful, church. When faced with difficult choices, whose advice are you heeding? The experts or God's word? Or godly counsel? When it comes to experts, there are many that guide in proverbial wisdom. In fact, a lot of them have actually good advice. I'm not knocking all experts. But then they put us off track as they continue their instruction apart from the Word of God. And the areas that it deviates away from the Word of God, you are in trouble, believer. Because now you're mixing two worldviews that are not compatible. So many of the, in the church want to be so liked by the world that they neglect what matters most in Scripture. In fact, experts will tell us that God wants us to be happy when God's Word tells us that He wants us to be holy. Experts will tell us that there's no point to living. God's Word tells us that we have so much more than this life has to offer. We have eternity awaiting us. Experts will tell us to prioritize our children. God's Word tells us to prioritize our spouse by exemplifying Christ to them. And in turn, you'll be able to love your children well. We do a lot of things backwards based on what the world tells us to do. Experts will tell us to worry about the virus the most. Scripture tells us there's something a lot more serious than the virus to worry about. That's your eternal soul. Oh, the virus is very real. 
We've been personally affected by every one of us in this, in this church has. But eternity affects every single one of us in a very personal way. Because we have family and friends that are either going to go spend eternity with Christ and one day be in the New Jerusalem with us, or they will be spending their time in hell, in the lake of fire, which many experts don't want to believe exists. Because their version of God is the one that they would like to make up. What waits beyond this life is more terrifying than the worst experience in this life a person endures. Pay attention, believer. All the things at the hospital beds and the scenes that you're seeing from this virus should terrify us, but none of it should terrify us as much as hell awaiting for eternity. Your heart should break that people are dying from this virus but it should break even more that they're on their way to hell if they don't know Christ. If you don't know to Christ, you're watching this online, let me tell you right up front that your greatest concern is your relationship with Christ. This virus may or may not get you, but death is pretty much certain for all of us. The Lord does not return early. Every one of us has to face what we've done with Christ. And either we place our faith in Him, and we turn from our identity and our sin and turn in faith to Him, repent of that, or we reject Him outright and face the consequences of all the things that we have claimed we're okay with, God judging us for what we've done. You don't want that. None of us wants that. Because the consequences for sin, as Scripture says, the wages of sin is death. And that death is ultimately separation from God's goodness. God's great, gracious love. You must change your mind about Christ in order for you and I to arrive safely on the other side. Listen, Mike, my call to you as a believer, if you're watching this online and you've been coming to church here and there, you're not really taking a lot of these things seriously, this virus should have woken you up and you're still asleep. Let me caution you that making shipwreck of your faith is going to have devastating consequences for you. That living apart from the instruction of God is one of the scariest things to do. It's dangerous. The question to ask is who will we listen to? Christ's sheep listen to his 